There is only one way that we grow and transform across the planet. There are as many stories of it as there are people on the planet. We are each going to do it in a very unique individual way. And yet we're all walking the very same journey. Once upon a time, in a magical kingdom, in a galaxy far, far away, at Four Privet Drive in Arendelle, Harry lived happily in the Shire, regularly visiting his friend Chewbacca and revelling in being heir to Mephusa's throne. Out of the blue, he receives a letter inviting him to attend Hogwarts, along with a distress message through R2-D2 from Princess Leia, cryptically referencing the Matrix and the discovery of magic freezing powers. Harry couldn't possibly believe that he could be a real wizard, so he decides to conceal and not feel his freezing powers and wonders aloud to Trinity whether it's all a dream. Thankfully, after a meeting with some mentors, Gandalf, Yoda, Hagrid, Morpheus, Timon and Pumbaa, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, Olaf the Snowman bestows on Harry his father's lightsaber and offers to train him to be a Jedi. Taking the red pill rather than the blue pill, he longs for the truth and sets off with the Fellowship on their journey to the Death Star. Summoning their courage, they invade Mount Doom in Mordor and save Princess Leia. But seeing the ring's corrupting power, Harry decides to forge ahead alone with Sam. They confront Elsa and her Ice Kingdom and ask her to return to the Pride Lands to take their rightful throne from Agent Smith. However, Gollum leads Harry away from Sand to Shelob's lair, where Morpheus is captured by an ice giant that they can't defeat, and Obi-Wan Kenobi is subsequently killed by his uncle Scar. It is then that Harry re-enters the Matrix in search for Morpheus, only to find himself in the room with the Philosopher's Stone and Mufasa's ghost, who tells them to join the rebels and destroy the Death Star. As they enter the Pride Lands to reclaim the throne and face up to Professor Quirrell, who's been hosting Voldemort in his body the whole time, Gollum bites off Harry's ring finger and jumps after him to his death in the Mountain of Fire. Harry wakes up in hospital, protected by his mother's sacrifice, to find Trinity declaring her love for him and her certainty that he is the one. He then uses his magic freezing powers to destroy the Death Star. Knowing now that Scar killed Obi-Wan, Anna shows her true love by lunging in front of Hans to save her sister, thus vanquishing Scar, melting the snow and finally destroying the Ring of Power and becoming reunited with the Fellowship. Leaving Middle-earth and ascending Pride Rock to reclaim the throne as Queen of the now unfrozen Arendelle, Harry takes his first step towards becoming a Jedi by making a phone call inside the Matrix stating that he will save humanity before returning victoriously to his cupboard under the stairs at Four Privet Drive for the summer, happy to belong at Hogwarts.
Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you're the next ruler in line looking out over your pride lands, a cheeky rouse about stealing a loaf of bread to share with your monkey, or maybe you just need to let it go. This is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Now, you may have noticed that little campfire tale sounded somewhat familiar. And we may well have just ruined six different movies for you. However, the reality is, we all know the story. Because really, there is only one story. And it's your story. And it's my story. You see, the reason these stories work is because they speak to the stories we're all walking. We're each on a constant journey, one of change and growth, whether we choose to be or not. To exist is to be in relationships and have responsibilities. It's to transition through life's phases and stages. It's to take on roles such as parent, partner, child or friend, all of which mean change and challenge. This, Episode 7, is all about living and honouring this reality. It's about the journey, the journey of growth and transformation. In it, we're going to see what faith looks like when viewed through this lens. And it must be said that that this is not the lens for every person of faith. For many, and and certainly for me growing up, faith seemed largely about a one-off decision. Faith can often seem like its main game is about joining, about gaining a membership card or believing and booking your ticket to the second act. For many, faith is less of a movement and more of a moment. But when faith is seen as a journey, a journey of growth and transformation, then those on that journey don't possess something that those outside of faith are without. Instead, they see themselves amidst the challenge and change of life as requiring resources, assistance and support to negotiate and navigate this complex and never linear existence. Our guest today, Alexander Shire, wears three hats in one that of a psychologist, anthropologist and spiritual director. These worlds have all worked together in exploring faith as a journey and in developing tools to walk fully the journey of embracing all that we are. So strongly is this his lens that it's transformed the way he sees and uses scripture and it's led him develop a tool we'll hear about called Quadratus. So let's go on a journey with Alexander Shire. Alexander Shire, welcome to Beyondering. Thank you. Delighted. Something we often uh, kick off in asking our guests is, what, what's the point or the value of the Christian story for you? My, my deepest passion is about going pan-tribal. We've come out of an eon of human time on this planet where we've all been tribal, whether it's been tribal by ethnicity or tribal by ideology. And Christianity at its best was the first tradition that became pan-tribal. And when we are at our best, we are still a tradition that leads the way in creating a table for all. So talk to us more about that pan-tribal and the origins of Christian story. How did that happen? What did it look like? 
Um, pan-tribal is in, in my American southernness. It's it no longer matters who your mama is. <laughs> uh, mama being the bloodline carrier. This is really the, the first Christian art form. And I don't think that we give enough thought to what happened in the first century when Jesus the Christ was here in our midst and the first followers after Jesus the Christ uh, created something that if another tradition on the planet had done it, they didn't leave a record behind. And that might be the case. But Christianity is the first spiritual practice on the planet that said it no longer matters who your mother is, it no longer matters where you're born, it no longer matters what religious tradition you have done, it no longer matters uh, which part of the empire, whether you have money or you have no money, it no longer matters if you were a slave, come, we have a table for you. And many, many traditions have a beautiful way of expressing equality and respect within the tribe. Uh, this is true amongst many indigenous peoples. Uh, indigenous peoples do not know how to be with other indigenous peoples. They are still, they are learning that at this developmental moment on the planet. Christianity is the tradition of record that solved the practices of doing this uh, 2,000 years ago. And then we forget our own tradition and we forget how we've done this in the past and we become tribal again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this moment, this century to me is about Christianity reawakening with all the great traditions, um, how we do this. So what's your sense of why tribalism, why having to have our club is so appealing? And then secondly, how do we transcend that? How do we embark on this journey, as you say, to become pan-tribal? The psychological side of myself is going to describe how as we are infants and children, we are comforted by a sense of knowing. Uh, somewhere in adolescence to young adulthood, we need to leave that developmental place aside and become comfortable with unknowing and uncertainty. Our, our Western culture is not yet supporting us in that later task of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, in fact, everything in our culture, advertising, the, 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 the media message is about knowing and having, mm. but especially about knowing. Mm. And to know means that we want to stay within what's known, which often means the people that we know, the life situations that we know, uh, the cultural norms that we know. And Christianity is, as a tradition, was born as a deep process of transformation. Jesus the Christ did not come to bring a dogma. Jesus the Christ came to bring a practice. So It's not, the practice of growth and transformation. So not in order to bring a new tribe, a new super tribe, a new way of knowing, but a practice of unknowing. A, a, because the, the first step out of what we know is to, is to no longer know. Mm. And the no longer, I mean, it's that great paradox of the, the unknowing is going to lead to greater knowing. Mm. But we, we have to be willing to jump into the deep end of the pool. Mm. Oh, yeah. mm. So we have to be trained, we have to learn 
to unknow, to not know. To we, we have to learn to unknow. So that's, man, that, that this is fantastic stuff. And what we'd really love to dig deep around, you, you've mentioned this phrase, we need to go on a pathway of growth and transformation. And that sounds as though that's your predominant work. That's your sort of life, you know, desire to pursue and talk about and explore that sort of stuff. So can you talk about how that came to emerge, particularly because you've got some other interesting strands in your life of anthropology and psychology. Mm. So I want to throw those into the mix. How do all those come together for you to then say, what I want to pursue is a pathway of growth and transformation? Uh, I think that probably all of us have a childhood memory that I don't know whether it forms our identity, but it's a memory that we return to uh, because it's sort of that touchstone that gives us a lot of information about our life path. Uh, I grew up as a first-generation Lebanese immigrant in Birmingham, Alabama in the United States in the 1950s. Those days in Birmingham, Alabama were very painful, chaotic days. Uh, Civil rights movement was just beginning. Uh, Civil rights was something that I saw in the street out in front of my house, not on television. Uh, When I was seven years old, my grandmother in Arabic, my sitho, my mother's mother, uh, her home that was the shelter of our family was set on fire one night by, we assume, the KKK. It's like you never know, but the KKK has a very signature way that they set a house on fire. They went in. Uh, No one was there. They went in. They gathered everything from the house that looked like it was from another country, Lebanon. They put that into a pile in the living room. They went back through the house, and they gathered everything that looked Catholic, and they put that on the pile. And then on top of the pile, they put the quote-unquote Catholic Bible. And they doused that pile with kerosene, and they threw kerosene around this very simple wooden structure lit a match and fled, and within minutes, that entire home was engulfed. And I, along with my parents and the rest of my family, were called and we were raced over to the house and stood outside and and watched it consumed. Six days later, we were sitting in another family member's house. I think it was my aunt and uncle's. Uh, Again, for Sunday lunch in the U.S., we call Sunday lunch dinner. And it was an expectation by my sitho, my grandmother, that everyone in the family was at her table for Sunday dinner. And even in those days, that was more than 70 people. So we were sitting in this enormous room on tables made of planks of wood set on wooden charley horses and paper plates. And as was my sitho's custom, uh, she said grace before meal. And she said grace, but she didn't reach for her fork. And that was always a signal that there was something more she was going to say. And so we, we waited. And she looked around the room. And even in those days, she had glasses that sort of went down the bridge of her nose. And she looked out up over her glasses and she looked at each one of us just for a few seconds, some 70 of us. And I was at the kids' 
table, the children's table, the metal car table way at the back of the room. And I remember her holding my gaze and then going on to the next person and the next person and the next person. And then she said very quietly, very insistently, no hate, no hate, no hate. And then she picked up her fork. And in that moment, in the way that a seven-year-old boy can remember a moment or think about that moment, I made a decision that my life was going to be something about all people together. Something about going beyond the tribes that we know. It was unimaginable to me as a Christian and as a Catholic that this organization that says they were Christian had done this to Mm. my family. How Mm. does that happen? Mm. So from my childhood through adolescence, through university days, um, this sense of mission or purpose about what draws people to a larger table. Hmm. And that's been through theological study, and it's been through anthropological study, and then finally uh, psychological study. And it's been the same question throughout all of those realms. What draws people to a wider table? I, I love the Thomas Merton quote, um, we're already one, though we think we're not. Man, it's a powerful life narrative and life question. So how then did, what did anthropology say in response to that question? How can we be one? What did psychology say to how can we be one? And what did your Christian and theological studies say to that? And tremendously grateful to my anthropological studies because they gave me, along with with Joseph Campbell, who came to my university every year and taught in the theology department, taught scripture as great myth. Um, the, The two of them gave me this sense that there is a universal story. And that universal story can be talked about as a sequence of practices and every tradition necessarily and appropriately will translate those practices into its way of understanding so that my anthropology work gave me this foundation that there is something universal Um, the psychology work gave me some languaging about and some sense of the practice of the sequence. But it's been the theology work that's the, it, that's the taproot. Um, because I'm impassioned by what Christianity did and learned and knows from those first centuries even though there have been times that we've gone away from it. Um, we, we know it, and we are that first tradition of record that not only had a theology that says all people are one, but we had a practice that created an imperfect communion, always imperfect, And yet we had the audacity and what other people would say, the folly 
to say to every person, every culture, every race, come, we have a table. That's that's the most impractical thing ever for a tradition to say. <laughs> it's not efficient. It's, it's not, not an efficient. Easy it's messy. Yeah. Well, but I'm picturing it's... I'm picturing your grandma with seventy people sitting around her <laughs> living room. That's <laughs> yes. Um, and and I love my family, and my family is largely tribal. Yeah. Mm. Um, so and even I, that I have, table's not big enough. Even that table's not big enough, and mm. it's. I, I come now from New Mexico in the United States, which is where we have many, many beautiful indigenous peoples. We have the Navajo and the Pueblo, and in earlier times we also had uh, Apache. What I've discovered in life with them is, is that they have a beautiful sense of union within themselves. They struggle greatly. Um, in sitting with other tribes. There is no one on the planet today, and I really am very passionate about, we need to get out of our romanticism about anybody else. There's no one on the planet today, there's no tradition, there's no people who have solved this question about the larger table. Mm. And it seems more and more pressing with you know, with ISIS narratives, with some of the fear, and you could name any pocket in the world right. and point to a key source of conflict with a neighbor or an other. Or a, so it continues to be almost our most pressing question. And I think it is our most pressing question. And I think that psychologically, when I look back over the last few centuries, what's happened psychologically amongst us is we birthed the ego. Yes. The ego has propelled us to question tribe, yes, but we haven't yet learned how to create that table of, pri- of pan-tribalism. Mm-hmm. We're just in the process of learning that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be naive about ISIS and those um, those horrible, oppressive um, ideologies that are living in our midst today. But they present us the circumstances to help us go forward. Tell us more about that. My belief in the Christ is that there is no circumstance that the Christ can't help us move towards greater love. ISIS is giving us the conditions that help us move towards greater love. We can choose to use this moment to move to greater generosity and hospitality. Mm. Or we can choose this moment to become embittered and fearful and resentful. Mm. I would hope that for people of all faiths and all deep spiritual practice, Mm. and especially for my tradition, that we will use this moment to enflesh the Christ. Mm. That's an extraordinary, not only response, but an extraordinary starting point to to say my those those who you know culture and world and media and so on would would name as my enemy you're describing them actually as a gift bearer they are a gift bearer wow i don't want to say that i in any way approve yes, of yes. Them, but they yeah. present us a gift yeah. Yeah. Wow. this this will be the test of our spiritual practice mm. Mm. 
So it's not how good we feel after our yoga session or how well we come out of a prayer meditation experience. This is the true test of our spirituality. What I learned in my psychological work is that repulsion is holy. Repulsion is holy. Repulsion is holy. Explain, please. (laughs) That so often that in our in when we are younger, we are taught to to cut off repulsion to move away from it. Um, deep spiritual practice teaches us how to hold it and how to understand the gift that it's giving us. The gift right. is to awaken us to our deeper value. Right. But we don't get the gift by running away from repulsion right. and revulsion. So we're taught discomfort, pain, suffering, avoid those, move away from, go somewhere else. Someone evokes a, a feeling or response in me, right? Get away from that person or name and label that person. You're saying that's where you got to walk towards. That's- I'm saying that that's where you walk towards. And I, I was having a conversation last night and we ended up talking about betrayal. And the Gospels teach me, the Gospel of Matthew teaches me that betrayal is the guardian of the door of growth. and if we refuse the experience of betrayal we stop growth and transformation Mm. it makes a great bumper sticker that (laughs) makes me feel like it would be really hard to do can you give an example of how that works in your own life what does it look like to walk towards betrayal? or How, how has that led you into greater growth? Yeah. Well, it, um, when I... I mean, and, and betrayal happens in very subtle ways and it happens mm. perhaps in our lives sometimes in dramatic ways. Um, for me, I, I was... When I was born, I was given the name Alexander. We have a long tradition, uh, 14 generations in our family, that the son named Alexander will be next in the line of Maronite priests. Wow. 14 consecutive generations. Yeah, well, it actually skipped a couple of generations (laughs) in there, but the the drumbeat is. Yes, yeah. (laughs) So my father gave me the name Alexander and assumed, more than assumed, expected, in the old ways, that that I would be the priest, and it fit me to a to a point. I was naturally, spiritually, and psychologically inquisitive. So I grow up. I negotiated with my father to go to university rather than directly to seminary. I went to university, had an incredible uh, opening experience, then went on to seminary. I got to seminary. And seminary for me was was stifling. It wasn't expanding. Um, at the University of, of, of Notre Dame, I had had what I think of as incredibly expansive theology that really helped me question and sort things out for myself. I got to seminary, and it was the seminary that I, w- that I was at was, here's the question, here's the answer, dot the I. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unscrew your head, pour in the information, screw right. it back mm. on. Right. Mm. It was, and, and, and I started um, having nightmares. Right. And I started um, getting very depressed. 
and I actually almost became suicidal because the the crisis was if I stepped out of seminary I was going to to say disappoint my father uh, I mean I I, I, at that point, I thought, and later became a reality, that to leave seminary, I would end up being shamed and shunned from the family. Mm. Mm. And that, in essence, happened. Right. So the weight of 13 generations on your shoulders. Yeah. 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 When I was given the name, it was more than an expectation. It was mm. an obligation. It yeah. was a responsibility to the family yeah. in the way that that old Semitic system works. Mm. Your father gives you your life. You don't mm. choose it. Mm. And you have that responsibility to the tribe mm. to live out in the way that your father has named for you. So hence, nightmares, depression, because something's saying this isn't the pathway you want. Right. I mean, I'm sitting here shaking my head and I'm realizing that the <laughs> listeners can't see that. But, but yes, and I... And He's agreeing strongly with I, everything we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I became acutely depressed mm. and mildly suicidal mm. um, because I knew that if I made this decision that I was feeling I had to make, that I was going to lose the beautiful tribe that I had known. Mm-hmm. I'm still amazed. I, I can only attribute it to spirit and, and to Christ that somewhere I found the courage to make that step. Mm-hmm. Because everything in my DNA, my, my body makeup, my emotions, everything was mm-hmm. saying, run back to what you know mm-hmm. and stay there. Mm-hmm. And was that loss of community, of network, of family, the reality? Yes, it was. There was there was a break with my father that was never mm. repaired. Mm. We made some steps, and I'm very grateful for mm. the the healing that did happen. But we never fully repaired that the break that happened at that moment. So when you spoke earlier about betrayal, I I uh, I heard that as someone else betraying me, but you're talking about it as as actually being the one. Pulling the pulling the rug out from expectations as yeah. as being the betrayer. In 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 essence, I was I wow. I betrayed my tribe. Wow. I'm just going to jump in briefly mid interview with a bit of a request. With Beyondering. We're striving to be a resource of reflective Christian practice and spirituality, and we are loving being able to to journey with a whole host of you through live events and book clubs and, of course, the podcasts themselves. However, everything we do with Beyondering, it's done in our spare time around families and ministry and all sorts of other commitments. What would be huge for us is is greater financial support. We'd love Beyondering to continue but, but also grow and evolve. So our brief request is that if you value what we do and also want to see where it wants to go, that you'd consider going to our website and becoming a Beyonder backer by signing up to offer a monthly or even just a one-off donation. And a quick shout-out to those of you who are already backing us. But anyway, we're going back now to Alexander Shire, who's about to introduce us to the concept he calls quadratus, which is a fascinating and unique way of reading the four Gospels that, that assists with this constant journey of growth and transformation. 
So I wanted, as I, as I became an adult and as I, as I, as I learned more and more about scripture, uh, and as I heard all the arguments and all the discussion about the gospel texts and who wrote them, and are there better texts? Uh, why did we end up with these four? Um, in American Southern parlance, was it a bunch of white men on the veranda sipping gin and trading the gospel texts like baseball cards? <laughs> or is there something so deeply true about these four that's not in the others? And that's not to say that the others might not have true stories of Jesus, because many of the others do have true stories of Jesus. But were the gospel, were, were, was the moment that the canon was put together, were they looking for something more than just a true story of Jesus? And I think they were doing something more. And that was from the moment of the betrayal with my family when I was thrown out or by my own hand walked out into the wilderness until 2000. I was compelled by this question about the something more in the gospel text. Um, the something more that I could, I could believe in that would still my mind from all the questions. And that's what arrived for me in 2000 after a 25-year search. Uh, oftentimes I tried to force an answer, but I pretty much had enough integrity that after a while I, I would step away from forcing it and like, no, if this thing is going to, if there is something there, it's, it, it's not going to be because I... I crafted it. Yeah. And that's what happened in 2000 was a very cold, snowy night in the upper desert of northern New Mexico. This is before I lived there. And a friend had just given me this fabulous book written by Robin Griffith Jones at Oxford. And the book was called The Four Witnesses. And in that book, Robin describes uh, what's going on in the community at the moment that the gospel texts are revealed. And this is sort of a, a summary compilation of the research that was done in the 80s and the 90s. And I know that not everybody agrees with this research. But as I sat and I, and I looked at Robin's book and I looked at his description of the great city of Antioch and what he was saying about what was going on in the, in the Christian community in Antioch. And then came the text of Matthew. I, I looked at the narrative of Antioch and went, I know this. This, this reads like my psychological clinical notes. It's a particular type of personal dilemma that a person or a community experiences. And I said, I just, I, I put Robin's book down and I said, what would it be like to pick up the Gospel of Matthew and read it as a response to this personal collective question that people are experiencing? Mm -hmm. And then 25 years of scholarship, interpretation, hermeneutics, study, prayer, 
the words of the gospel sort of melted down and reformulated in a new way where I could see it through this lens um, that the text of Matthew was answering the question of how we face change. Mm-hmm. And the question of how we face change organizes every word in that text. It organizes the sequence of the text. It organizes the why of the text. And it answers why the text is distinctly different than Mark or John or Luke, which are written to different questions. Right. So the, you're, not, you're not seeing the Gospels as simply... Yeah, in, in current movie parlance, as reboots of the same story. This is Tarantino's version of this story. This is Scorsese's version of this story. Help me come up with a better image. Let's say that the Q source is a room that's filled with sayings and stories of Jesus. You've, you've got cards everywhere. Now, an evangelist, compelled in the moment by his or her people's crisis wants to give them the story of Jesus uh, like a great sermon that would address the Jesus moment in their life right now. So I've got this enormous library of the historical story of Jesus, but I'm not going to tell the historical story. I'm going to take the historical story in by spirit I craft from history the way to tell that story to you in this moment Mm -hmm. to let you know that the Jesus story is not only in history. Mm -hmm. The Jesus story is every moment of history. Mm -hmm. It's a living story. Mm -hmm. It's an eternal story. It's a universal story. So to clarify, the stories, the journalist bits are known. The community's already chanting the, the, the stories. They're telling it around campfires. The the data and the information about Jesus is known. They don't need, they don't feel the need to retell themselves this. That's it. They're doing it all the time. I mean, I think everyone would agree now that we know that the Gospels are composed to already baptized Christians. Yes. So so it's not first evangelization. Yes. The the text can be used for first evangelization, but I'm just saying at this moment, it's not first evangelization. So the writer... Tell me how to be a deeper follower in this moment of crisis. Yes. And they're writing it to a particular community and with a, with hovering, you're saying, hovering around a really particular question. Right. And Matthew's going, how do we face change? Right. That's the one question that he's walking into that room with all the corkboard texts everywhere and says, I'm going to compile a story of Jesus that'll help my community explore the question of how do we as a community face change? Right. Right. And you so, see all four of the gospel texts doing that and hovering around a different question. Right. So um, in this lens, uh, Matthew is hovering around the question of facing change or beginning again. Uh, Mark is hovering around the question of great trial and obstacle. How do I move through tremendous trials and obstacles? Uh, John is the question of, of joy and wider relationship. And Luke is the question of maturing in our service. Mm. So four different questions. Four different questions. And now here's where anthropology gave me this uh, great, uh, useful insight. Um, Most of the world's initiations 
are either initiations in four parts or seven. And the seven-part initiations are simply further amplifications of the four. So what do you mean by initiation? Uh, a, initi the world's great initiation rites usually take an, uh, a young person from adolescence to adulthood mm -hmm. yeah. where it's going to teach them how to live, yeah. how to assume mature responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that these initiations or these processes of change have four steps to them. Mm, rites of passage. Rites yeah. of passage have four steps to them. Mm. And you're and saying this world over. World, world over. I mean, this yeah. is my anthropology work. Mm. I, my, my field in anthropology were rites of initiation. Mm. And rites of initiation are either four steps or seven. And the first step is um, hearing the summons or the summons is thrust upon you. And remember that in most um, in most girls' initiation, their initiation starts because menses has come, which comes by surprise. And most boys' initiations are begun because someone in the tribe, uh, by disguise, goes into the house at night and abducts the boy and takes them out to the initiation grounds. Mm -hmm. Um, the first part of initiation, of every deep initiation, is about how you're going to face a, a surprising event that in some ways we can describe as an emotional betrayal. The second part of the initiation structure is being in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, you are, you have, there are many trials and obstacles that you face, and by presence and mentoring, you can overcome. The third part of the initiation cycle is when you have that deep aha moment. For most adolescents, it's a moment where they receive their life's work or their life's path. The fourth part of the initiation is I come back from the initi initiatory experience and I have a mentor. And this mentor takes me from knowing about what my life's path is to actually teaching me how to do it. Mm. So four pathway, I hit a moment of change or I'm thrust into a moment of change. Then I'm into crisis, obstacles, wilderness, desert. How do I make sense of this? Then there's some moment of spring of, aha, yeah. okay, I see a way. But then there's an, I've got to integrate this way. So I've had this moment of experience, but now I've got to go back go back down the mountain and live right. it, work it, right. rough and tumble it and make sense right. of it in daily living. The thing is, most Westerners want to do a three-step initiation. Yes, the aha is the end. The, the aha is the end. Yeah. The fourth, if you don't do the fourth step, the whole thing falls apart again. Yes. It's like the fourth step is critical. Yes. Anyway. So, so you, you mentioned earlier in the interview, the, there's, a, there's a great universal movement. And that's that's what you're referring to. Is that, that is these are archetype stories? Is that is that it, a fair it's, word? It absolutely is yeah. a fair word. Yeah. Um, mm. Very apt. There there is that there is only one way that we grow and transform across the planet. Wow. Yes, there there, there are as many stories of it as there are people on the planet. Yeah. We are each going to do it in a very unique individual way, and yet we're all walking. The very same journey. Yeah. So give us some examples. You say world over, happens anywhere and everywhere. Quick grab bag of other examples of this universal path. 
um, let's let's bring this home to our mother faith Judaism. Uh, the core metaphor in Judaism for growth and transformation is the coming out of Egypt story. I'm a slave in Egypt. There's a summons to liberation. I have to make a choice about whether I'm going to go with Moses or not. Where do I go? The wilderness, where we now know that most of the people who came out of Egypt probably died. Then they come into the third part of the story, the promised land. They arrive in the promised land. But the arrival was nothing because it took them 200 years to move from their arrival to the nation state of Israel. Mm. Their aha arrival. The aha moment, Mm. the arrival moment, Mm. just opened up a 200-year work Mm. to make this their lived reality. We're going to make sense of this now, are you? Yeah. And so that story is the story retold because it taps into everyone's story always. So the Jewish people continue to tell the Well, And and it's an amplification about how Jews were celebrating Passover, Mm -hmm. which during the time of Jesus and uh, up until the time that the temple is destroyed in 70, uh, Passover is not a lot of ritual food. Yes, the head of the household had taken the lamb or the goat to the temple that day. It was slaughtered. Uh, The blood poured over the altar, the meat given back to be taken home to be prepared for the nighttime. The family, the household gathered. The head of the household early in the evening is going to ask the first question. We know that our ancestors in Egypt were given the chance of liberation. We know that they were slaves given the chance for liberation. How today are you a slave? And in what way today are you hearing a call to liberation? So as I open this up, Passover is not about a recitation of history. Mm -hmm. It's about a living moment that's happening in you right now. Because all of us are enslaved to different things. All of us require liberation. Are we addicted to fear? Mm-hmm. Are we addicted to a substance or to an activity? What What's our enslavement? Because there's always another layer of enslavement in us. Mm-hmm. There's always another place in us that we need a deeper presence of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and Passover is, is even more beautiful because there's going to be this sharing around the table about you know how we're a slave today. And then the head of the household is going to ask the second question. And we know that our ancestors went out into a wilderness unto death. How right now in your life are you in a wilderness unto death? So what they're doing around this table is not a linear journey. It's like all four parts of the journey are present in your life right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're and not then, just at a you're not at stage three or hey are you at stage two where are you on, you yeah, where are you on the yeah, journey we're 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 all of those places at once right this is not the uh, the four steps to spiritual success or the uh, <laughs> the, 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 the four habits of highly spiritual people I was <laughs> eyeing off something beyondering could have marketed so it's a real shame yeah. so later in the evening uh, the question would come 
back to the head of the household who would say, and we know that our ancestors crossed from the wilderness into the promised land. And the question around the table would be, and where are you today hearing God's new promise? Where are you today hearing God's new promise? And then very late at night, towards the end of the great meal, uh, the fourth question would be asked, and that was, now as we begin to leave Passover, what are you committing yourself to to build up your life, your family, your community, your country uh, in this next year? And so this, this Passover at the time of Jesus was much more a living of the Passover story in the present moment. It has a historical anchor in time, but it's not a story about a past event. It's a story about the spiritual practice of growth and transformation now. And the Jewish people are trained and formed year after year after year to know these four questions about their life with Yahweh, their yes. life with, with the one shimmering breath. So... That was the Jewish examination of conscience done as a family once a year. And Christianity gave us the great story. They didn't need to reinvent the story of Passover. They needed to add the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ to it. So each one of the gospel texts is our passage, our Pascha, our passage through that question with Jesus. Therefore, the birth story in each text or the lack of a birth story in each text is appropriate to the question. And the passion account of each text is not the mere recitation of history. It's the spiritual practice of that question. The way Jesus dies in Matthew Jesus moves through tremendous betrayal. Why does that, why does Matthew's passion text bring together all the historical notes of betrayal and amplifies it so much in that text? Because there's, there's disciples falling asleep, there's Peter chopping, he, he's surrounded by these stories of betrayal in a way the other gospel writers have omitted. Or, right, and there's a signature moment, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> Right at, the, right at the arrest scene. Now, all of the texts are going to name Judas as the quote-unquote betrayer. Mm. But right at the arrest scene, Matthew does it again. And Jesus says to the disciples, look, the betrayer is at hand. And Judas comes up to kiss Jesus. And Jesus says to Judas the betrayer, and actually, I prefer to let, let's take the name Judas out of that. This is not about a particular mm -hmm. person. This is about betrayal. Jesus looks at betrayal and says, friend. None of the other texts give us this name friend at this moment. So Matthew has done a couple of things, which is part of the truth of his text about how we face betrayal at this moment. Jesus looks at betrayal and says, friend. Do what you have come to do and submits to it. So a community that's asking the question, how do we face and embrace change? Those texts around the death scene become really important. Yes. And then in Mark's gospel, 
it's asking a different question so yes. the texts adapt and change. Yes. So Mark, we hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in the desert. It's We don't hear that in the other Gospels from the cross. Well, actually, that, that line is also in Matthew. Oh, there you go. But, but Mark amplifies it to, it really brings it to full feeling, expression, this sense of isolation, which is so much a part of that second movement of the wilderness is to feel like the obstacles have become so great, nobody can help us carry this burden. Yes. So is that progression through those, through those questions and through that archetypal journey, is that, in your view, is that why the canon is lined up as it, as it is? Because the Gospels aren't in order of as they were written. They're Correct. not in order of length. Correct. So is that the order in the, which they're put? The, the order in the Gospels in the New Testament is the order that the ancient church read them. They read them in a three-year cycle, and the three-year cycle is the cycle of growth and transformation. Mm -hmm. Where Matthew was the first text, the Matthew is the you know facing change year one. Mm. Mark is the second text year two, facing trials and obstacles. Luke is the fourth text, maturing in service. The great wisdom was they did not give John a year, but they gave John a season. John is the text mm. that we read and pray every Lent and Easter, because it's the text of wider relationship. And resurrection in the early Christian church had nothing to do with about body. It had to do with about emotion and vitality. Resurrection is the larger table where we are always welcoming in the other. And if you're not in the process of welcoming in the other, you are dying. You are not rising. If you are welcoming in the other, you are expanding the one heart. That is resurrection. That's the heartbeat of the text of John. And that's why in the early church, John was the only text to be proclaimed during Lent and Easter. The other texts have their own experience of resurrection. But the gospel is not about what happened in Jerusalem. The gospel is about what happens in your heart and what happens at your table. It's about here and it's about now. It's, it happened in history, but that's not its glory. Its glory is that it's happening now just the way it happened then. And how do we know the veracity of it? The veracity of it is not in the archaeology. The, there will never be enough DNA or, or whatever in Jerusalem to prove anything. The veracity is this happens now in you, here in us, and therefore we can believe it. So it's not so much did Jesus rise from the dead, but is Jesus rising and alive in you? Yes. Mm. I think is if if your heart is growing in love and charity and justice, we know resurrection. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Matt was talking about uh, what we might put on your bumper sticker earlier. I, I think maybe that phrase is it. Yeah. The gospel is what happens in your heart and at your table. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, there, there are so many things. About it. We've got a very convoluted sense of gospel veracity. Um, the text of Mark, written to a people in genocide, gave them no story of seeing the risen Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And in essence, that text is saying, don't believe a story that you heard because Peter said it. Yes. 
believe because you've experienced resurrection, then you know the story is true. The story leads to experience and the experience, it leads to the story being deeper. And the deeper the story, the deeper the experience. Mm. But it starts not with believe a text because it is written or it is said. Yes. Believe it because it is lived. Yes. Mm. So perhaps to round off our conversation, can you attempt to put it back on the road by offering an example of your own life of how you've seen these movements, this universal path of growth and transformation in your life? It's interesting because there was the same question that Harper asked me with the, the earlier book, The Hidden Power of the Gospel. And I hadn't realized, but when I looked back, I could see the movements uh, in the macro lens of my life that up to the point that I said no to my father and left mm-hmm. seminary mm-hmm. was my first path Matthew moment of facing into betrayal. And then that long wilderness of wandering between that moment in the mid-70s until 2000 was my mark in wilderness experience unto death. Um, Never doubting the presence of God, but wondering how and where all of this could lead, this pain and alienation and isolation. In 2000, when this way of seeing the Gospels hit, um, literally, I don't, I don't think I slept for months. And it was like all of this scintillating experience, which is the third path. But what I had to learn was is that there was so much energy in what had arrived that I was trying to talk about it too soon. And people couldn't understand me. I thought I was being very clear. I thought I was being psychotic. (laughs) And I've learned very gradually as I moved into the fourth path of Luke that I don't want people to believe anything because I've seen it or I've said it or I've written it. Try on this experience and see what it does for your heart. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, please leave it alone. This whatever I'm about only has truth if it brings your heart alive in love and vitality and creativity and justice. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just somebody else's mm-hmm. two-cent idea. Mm. But you wouldn't have said that in that aha moment. No. It took no. you to go through it's, Luke. It's, to... it's taken a long time for me to step out of the power of what happened to me and realize that this is not about me. This is about something of the spirit, and it's the spirit's responsibility. Well, I'm just I'm just thrilled for the listeners of our podcast that uh, that we're inviting them into conversation somewhere between Matthew and Luke, because exactly. leaving your life back and forth between uh, we are the bookends of you, spiritual right. growth. And <laughs> you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom, for your authenticity, and thank you so much for coming beyond doing this. You are most welcome. So if you found yourself taken by these ideas and would like to explore them more, check out quadratus.com where you can find resources about the ancient fourfold journey of growth and transformation 
And check out Alexander's book, Heart and Mind, The Fourfold Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. In the next episode, for the only time this series, we'll be hearing from two voices. Both recordings were captured whilst on the road. One is with Deshna Ubeda, who was the second interview we recorded live at the Common Dreams Conference in Brisbane. Deshna is the director of ProgressiveChristianity.org and is passionate about transformational festivals and alternative community gatherings. She'll help us explore what future forms of sacred community might look like. I think the general consensus is it's probably not going to look like what it looks like today or has looked like, and I would say necessarily so. Just the fact that you walk into a church and usually there's pews and usually there's the organ and usually there's a stage, right there, I'm turned off. You know, I, I want to sit and face people in a circle. I want to see nature. You know, I want to hold hands with the people that I'm celebrating or worshiping with. I want different expressions of wisdom and art and music. And I think that's because we're really moving toward an outside of the box awareness, a desire to really be authentic in our self-expression and our experience. The second guest recorded during our road trip to the United States is Philip Clayton, a professor, academic and sought-after public speaker who works to formulate constructive theological responses to developments in contemporary science and philosophy. His research focuses on biological emergence, religion and science, process studies and contemporary issues in ecology, religion and ethics. He's good. He's just really good. He even gave us a good interview after we told him the wrong hotel to meet us at. There is something that emerges when people leave the structures and the institutions and the isms. Mm -hmm. And that thing that emerges is, I would say it, closer to the free form nature of wandering of a certain first century rabbi who really interests me as a post-institutional, indeed anti-institutional guy. Together, Deshner and Philip will help us look through the lens that we're going to call emergence. We'll ask the question, what does faith look like when we pay attention to its new, emerging and unfolding ways? So join us next time and keep coming beyondering. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. This episode was produced by Adam Ball and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, go to www.beyondering.com.au.